The Entrepreneur Journey Podcast, episode 31. Hey guys, this is Rudy Banks. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Entrepreneur Journey Podcast. Today's episode is about learning how to invest in real estate with my special guest, Antoine Martel of Martel Turnkey. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but Antoine is a millennial. He's done deals anywhere from five to seven figures. If that doesn't get you cited, then I don't know what will. Make sure you have a pencil, paper, whatever you need to take copious notes. We also have resources in the show notes below, so make sure you check out those. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you like, share, subscribe, and I will see you in another episode. Enjoy. Hey guys, I just had a pleasure of meeting Antoine Martel of Martel Turnkey. He has a remarkable story coming to real estate right out of college, done over 100 properties a year. And um, he has a great story I want to just share. We've just been chatting a little bit about our backgrounds when it comes to real estate and you know where we're from. And so with no further ado, I just want to introduce Antoine and just kind of tell a little bit about your background and, and just share with my audience um, how you got started and, and we'll take it from there. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me on and pleasure to be here. Um, so I started investing four years ago. Uh, I was still at university, but kind of my last year at university, it was, uh, I studied entrepreneurship at Loyola Marymount University here in LA and it was either, okay, I can get a job just like everybody else, all my classmates, or I can start my own company, which is what I really want to do. And I didn't know it was going to be real estate related. I thought I would like make an app and then like retire three years later, but, uh, didn't happen that way. I, Ended up learning as much as I could about real estate while I was at college. I learned as much as I could. I figured out that flipping houses in California was way too expensive, way too difficult um, to put all your eggs in one basket. And I didn't have you know a million bucks or 500 grand in my bank account to do so. So I started looking at rental properties, looking at investing out of state, doing stuff out of state, seeing all the success that people were having out of state. Then my last semester at university, I bought a rental property out of state in Memphis, Tennessee, bought the house with my dad's 40,000 bucks, renovated it, rented it out, put a property management company in place, and then did a cash out refinance, gave my dad his money back, and then just kept growing like that. So I would raise money for projects um, and just kept doing that right out of college. And the goal was kind of just to help my parents um, you know, grow a rental property portfolio so that they could, they could eventually live off of that. My dad has his own business, so he doesn't have any 401k or anything like that. So um, it was really just creating a retirement plan for my parents. Um, one year after graduating, I decided to start helping other families because we started selling our properties before we would refinance them to friends and family and stuff like that. So I started selling properties to just friends and family um, and, you know, selling them turnkey. So we would just do everything except for refinancing and just sell them properties that were fully renovated with tenants in place, give them the property management company um, and call it a day and help people help other families invest just like my parents were doing out of state. And that's kind of grown to what we are today. And now we do, you know, eight to 10 houses a month or a hundred homes a year, um, help other people, other families invest in rental properties all across the U S and a couple of different markets. And yeah, that's where we are today. So, wait a minute, I just have to back up. You just said you graduated in 2017, right? Yep. <laughs> you went out and started your own company, uh-huh. and you're doing 10 properties a month. That's amazing. Thank uh, you. <laughs> so, so, like you said, you studied entrepreneurship in college. 
Yeah. Um, I think right there that that had to accelerate your growth because you know, having been out of college and you know everybody was, you know, back in the day was like, oh, go to school to be an engineer, a doctor, yeah. a lawyer, teacher, but I really felt like there was never enough emphasis on financial management, investing, and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. So how did you even, you know, even think about that in your college? How did that come about? Yes, yeah, so there's not many colleges that offer entrepreneurship as a major because this was like this wasn't just like an elective class. This was like a full course load, right? So, we did everything like from the accounting side and learning about statistics and all that stuff, but then we you know, the on, the entrepreneurship side was more about like, okay, if you're going to start a company, how do you raise money for that company or that product? How do you build a team? So, it's more like going from like 0 to 1 and that's pretty much what the whole entire course and those courses were about. So, they would also bring in like really cool speakers, like people who started companies. So, you were kind of learning a ton about how people went from 0 to 1 and how they grew and scaled their businesses and then the school would also put on events like um, well, they would have like startup weekend and they would have all these like events and stuff like that for the students to actually like put their skills to the test. Um, and some classes were even like like the first week of classes, like, OK, you guys are going to get into teams and you're going to, you know, in three months at the end of the semester, you guys are going to pitch to a bunch of investors and try to raise money. So, you know, coming up with the idea for the product, coming up with like, you know, your core values, your core competencies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it was really cool in that sense. The reason why I chose it is just business management just wasn't, I had like looked at some of the courses for business management um, and then compared those with entrepreneurship. And I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Like I, ever since I was a little kid, I've been selling everything that you can think of from soda to candy bars to skateboards to hats, (laughs) shoes, everything. So it was kind of like in my blood and I was like, I don't want to just be a business management major and take these you know, management classes. I want to, I want to do something and, you know, being in control of something. So that's kind of how I came across the entrepreneurship major. And yeah, there's not many schools that offer it. Gotcha. So that, so there was always, you always had that knack for just going out and making things happen. Yeah. So yep. Explains a little bit more. Cause it's like, man, that's a lot of people, you know, later in life, they finally get the bug and it's like, okay, we're gonna make this drastic change. So that's yeah. amazing. Um, yeah. So so graduating college, was there any pressure on going out and getting a real job, you know, as they say, or you just knew that you were going to go out into business? Yeah, um, there was no there was no pressure for me. I, you know, my parent, I think the pressure would have if it were to come, it would have came from my parents. Right. Um, but my parents were, you know, through my whole life that my dad, my mom's an entrepreneur. So she started when I was a little kid. She had like um a bunch of different companies that i would help her out with even though i was a little kid i would like run the cash register she had like a retail store she had like a sauce company a gourmet food company a catering company (laughs) so like when i was a little kid i would start my own little businesses and then help mom you know do her businesses while my dad was at work right um and then for my little companies that i would start off as a little kid my dad would always you know invest in those companies quote unquote and we would kind of it would just be like a bunch of practice sessions to get to the real thing. So he would always, you know, they always pushed me to start my own company. Um, even I remember when I was in high school or community college, my dad was like, I want you to go and get an internship and I want you to see how it is to actually work for somebody else in a in a big company. Because at that point, in, I think in high school, I hadn't had worked for anybody. Um, I hadn't had a job because I was 
too young. But then as soon as I hit 18, he was like, you need to go and work for a company. So go get an internship at some big company and see, <laughs> he was like, just see how it is. And it may pressure you into, you know, you don't want to do this because my dad's been working, you know, for somebody else his whole life. He kind of, I think he wanted to show me what it was like to actually work for somebody else instead of working for yourself. So I got an internship while I was at high school and I think I did it for like two summers. And then after it, I was like, wow, these people are so slow. They hardly reply to emails. I can't get anything done. All my ideas get pushed on the rug. So I think it was through that, like my dad backing me up on the entrepreneurship side and then also like showing me, like giving me a little reality check of the, what it, what it's going to be like if I don't go and do the entrepreneurship and start my own company. That That's what really pressured me into doing what I'm doing and becoming an entrepreneur and starting something myself. That's a good point. I mean, I remember uh, reading the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that was kind yep. of the, that was a game changer for me. Yeah, you know, going through college, I was the traditional route, but reading that book, it kind of planted that seed. And Robert Kiyosaki, one of the things I always tell everybody and I always share, he always says, "Go to work to learn." You know, a lot of times we were conditioned to say, "Okay, go to college and get a good job and you know make a bunch of money, whatever." Yeah, but the book was saying. You know, go to work to learn. And I always took that to heart because now it's not about just going to make an income, but it's going to learn the business, learn the culture. And like you said, the things that you didn't like, the slow pace, you can now apply that to your own business because you had opportunity to work for other companies. And, you know, you've been in the business for what, almost two years, yeah. whereas some of these other companies could have been around for like GE, for example, is like 125 year old company. Yeah. There's no way I could get all that culture and experience in a short amount of time without having to work for somebody else so yeah that's that's good good advice. i agree yeah and that yeah that book's amazing i mean rich dad poor dad I, that's like the first book i recommend to people who are like why do you invest in real estate and why don't you want to buy a house and blah blah, blah. and that's the first book i'm like go read this book and then <laughs> and then we'll talk and yeah it's a huge mind shift because it lays it out super simply how he grew his wealth and how he's helping other people grow wealth too that's awesome, man. So let's just fast forward. So you're in college, you start your business. How how'd you go about, you know, setting your business up when you got it started? Did you just, like you said, you did your first property. Once you got rolling, you know, did you start doing some setting up structure? Did you bring on partners? How did you start scaling yeah. from that first property? So in order to do that first property, I had to build a team on the ground, right? Because I'm in California. I was doing stuff in you know Memphis, Tennessee. So I went out there, found a contractor, property management company, realtor, inspector, appraiser, all that kind of stuff. So that was like my team that I had built. And they were all you know commission-based, right? So they, wouldn't, they weren't on my payroll or anything. So just the more projects we did, the more money that they made. So everybody was kind of incentivized to do more deals and help Antoine do more deals. That's just kind of how I set it up. So we did that first project and I was like, all right, let's just see if this is successful. If we can pull our money out, then we'll do another one. So we did, it went to, it was successful, got our money back. And I was like, okay, now let's do two. Those two projects went successful, got our money back. Okay. Now, you know, so we just kept slowly growing it. Um, the only thing, so the team on the ground was already in a scalable position. The contractor could add on more people onto his crew, and that's what he has done. Now he's working on, like, I think, you know, seven houses at a time when he was only doing one house of ours at a time. He's full-time with us now, and so is his whole crew. So that's that scaled the, you know, the realtors we were working with added on assistance. So they kind of, so they kind of, like, scaled themselves. I didn't really need to micromanage them or help them scale. It was like, Hey, there's more volume coming, so you guys better be ready, you know? 
but me personally, I only needed to scale the money raising side because, you know, I went from 40,000 bucks to doing, being able to manage, you know, only fund one project. And then I was doing 10 projects. So it was again, a natural progression of just, um, networking in LA on bigger pockets, networking events, sharing with people what I was doing, what I was trying to do, um, and really raising money that way. So I started just raising money from people in LA to help fund those projects. And that's what I needed to, to really scale up to a point, um, of, you know, doing 10 houses a month was just really, I needed the cash in order to do that. But every other thing was already in a scalable position to be able to handle that volume. Gotcha. So this, I don't want to get into all your, you know, let me know if it's any proprietary information, but when you start working with your clients, like what kind of business models is it flips? Are you doing turnkey properties for like if, if a investor wants to, you know, buy investment property or rental? Yeah. And you can, yeah, you can ask me whatever you want. I'm open book. Um, so the way that my business structure kind of works is I'll buy a property, rehab it, rent it out, put a property management company in place, and then I'll put it up on my website. Um, if it doesn't sell after six months of me owning it, then I'll just do a cash out refinance and um, hold that property myself long term. So that's kind of my business model. Now, introducing the funding side to it, what I used to do when I first started, you know, my first like 20 or 30 projects, um, investors would come in, they would invest like 80% of the total project cost. I would put some skin in the game. And then the plan for the project would be to buy, rehab, rent, and then resell on my website. Um, and so that's, and then the, we would split the profits 50 50. So they were like joint venture partners with us. So those people would, you know, invest 80% of the project costs. They would get 50% of the profits. And then they would just keep rolling their money into more and more projects. So that's how I was able to to really scale up. And then, you know, once somebody makes like a 20% return off you on a flip, quote unquote, to a, you know, a turnkey investor, then that person's going to keep coming back. They, they tended to double down their money, um, and stuff like that. So it was really just finding like five to 10 investors who, you know, would take the first chance at me. And then kind of just those people, they were like walking billboards at that point. Cause they would go and share and say, Oh, you should really invest with Antoine. And, um, he pays really good returns, blah, 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 blah. And that's kind of how I was able to scale it without like, um, without too much, it was still a lot of effort on the networking side, but it kind of grew itself just by treating people right and paying them a good return and doing what you say you're going to do kind of helped scale up the, the raising money side as well. You think about like a CD and stuff, banks and stuff now, but they're paying like ridiculously low returns, what, one to two percent over, you got to keep your money in there for five or 10 years or whatever the number mm -hmm. is nowadays. But it's just, it's really hard to you know, compete with that if you're giving a 20% returns. Yeah. It's kind of a no brainer. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And I, and I realized too, at that time, like when I was only doing my first, you know, 10 or 20 homes, like I still didn't have much reputation. I didn't have a rapport with people. Like I was just some young kid who had just graduated college. So it needed to be like, a um, there needed to be a risk reward factor for people to actually invest their money. So that's why I was willing to give away, you know, half of the deal to these investors because, you know, nobody would trust me with just giving me a private money loan at, you know, 10 or 12% at that point, because it was just too low of a return. But once they saw 20%, then people's ears really perked up and they, you know, just did their due diligence then uh, and began to trust me. So 
yeah, it's hard. It's hard to raise money for those first couple projects, and you may need to give away more than you want to. But then, once you do thirty or forty projects, then you stop using those joint venture partners, which is what I I don't use joint ventures anymore. I just kind of raise money, um, like private money lending. So people lend me money at ten or twelve percent, um, and then instead of getting a percent of the percentage of the profit, they just make a interest payment every single month. Okay, nice. I just want to back up just a little bit, you know, being that I have, I have a company called PCS Albany LLC and we basically do contracting work. Yeah. Uh, we were talking earlier before we you know, started this session and, um, you know, there are some growing pains when it comes to starting a business, <laughs> you know, getting your name out there. You know, me personally, just finding quality workers and laborers to make sure that the quality is to the expectation you need it to be. What are some yeah. of the challenges that you faced early on with you know, some of your vendors or just some of the things yeah. that really that stick out in your mind that you struggled through, but now you're like, man, it wasn't so bad, but it was a nightmare when I was going through it. What are some of those moments? Yeah. So going through one of those right now, I bought an apartment building in December. Um, and there was supposed to be some guy was supposed to be doing work on that project. Um, and you know, building a new staircase and, um, you know, with, there was weather, then the guy, there was weather issues because there was like, there's been storms the last couple of months in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, so it really delayed all that work that was supposed to get done. Um, then we go and check the quality of the work at the end. Like you said, if the stuff doesn't line up, like the, the handrails are too short for code. The steps are not, um, are supposed to be like whatever, six inches or seven inches apart, but they're only like three or four inches. So, <laughs> so I'm going to, going to go out there and have him re weld the whole thing, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, finding quality workers is hard. The reason why is because the guys who are doing quality work, like my contractors that I use for just a single family home side, we, I keep reusing the same guys over and over and over and over again. And they're, they're, uh, they're busy as hell. They can't even take on other people's projects because they're working with us full time now, like I said. So yeah, finding those good contractors is really difficult because the good ones are busy, right? So finding contractors to do work on your projects, you know, if they have all this free time and they're going to go walk out to your projects for free and, you know, do all this kind of stuff without having a relationship with you, it, it becomes really difficult um, because they may not be doing quality work, like you said. Um, the way that I found my contractors, the ones that I have now for the single family home side is uh, mostly through referrals. So referrals have been the best way that I've found just because you can kind of sneak yourself into the door, even though that contractor may be really busy. So, you know, if the contractor has so many projects going on, but you're referred by somebody who, you know, is their top client, for example, or, or a broker or realtor that they really like and trust, then you, you may be able to get in the back door where that person may not have an online presence because they're so damn busy. They, the work just comes to them, right? They don't need to be on social media or marketing or, you know, replying to people's posts on, you know, some job board website. They're, they're busy as hell. They get phone calls left and right. So that's kind of how, for me, it was like all my, all my contractors to this day still come from referrals. Gotcha. And what about like the, um, the business side of it? Um, how do you, how do you set your structure up and were there any challenges, things there like lessons learned uh, things you didn't know that you didn't know. Yeah, I mean, again, it's about finding that team on the ground who is all going to be incentivized for you to do more deals. 
for me too, like I would go and visit the markets. I would like meet with all, like I'll meet with five property management companies, five or 10 of the best realtors in that city or whatever. And then I would, you know, kind of see who I also like vibed with the most or had the most like the best of a relationship with who I can sit down and talk to for, you know, two or three hours and time would be flying by. So you're going to be working with these people day in and day out. So you want somebody who you can talk to who, you know, has the same mindset as you, same values, et cetera. Right. You know, like I was a 22 year old kid going out to all these markets. So I was like, I was trying to find somebody who was young and hungry and looking to grow. And cause those are all things that I wanted to do. So if you go and look at my teams, that's the teams that I built. Like most of them are under 30 years old. They're trying to grow. They're trying to expand their business. Um, whether that be the property management side or, or the realtors or the contractors, all of them are kind of looking to grow. So I would say, you know, it's about quality of work and, um, stuff like that too. Um, and putting in the work, but it's also like finding somebody that you can have the best relationship with who you wouldn't mind, you know, doing business with and talking to, you know, every single day. So it has to be somebody you, you have a good relationship with and you guys are kind of on the same level and have the same vision, I would say. Gotcha. So the no like trust factor. Yeah. Yeah. And so what about like, um, like, did you incorporate, did you do anything with the LLC? Did you got it? Some of that, that structure. Yeah. So that business structure, the legal structure. Um, so what I did is I made like an umbrella LLC. So Martel turnkey LLC. Then underneath that LLC, I have like MTK one, MTK two, MTK three, MTK four, and all of those projects. So every single house that we do a renovation on is in one of those sub LLCs. Um, so I started off just with a banner and then I did MTK one. And then, you know, once I had too many projects under one LLC, I would make a new LLC and then buy houses under that LLC. So that's kind of how my business structure is today. It's just like reducing the amount of liability that you have. And so that if you know something bad happens on one project, you can't be sued for your entire portfolio. Right. So it's, we have like 35 projects going on at one time. If those are all under one LLC and somebody sues us for whatever reason, whether it be a contractor or a tenant or somebody walking by, um, then I don't want them to take my whole portfolio. But at least I can just uh, you know, split up the, um, the risk and kind of diversify a bunch across like 35 LLCs instead of just two or three. Gotcha. Now, is there, is there a rule of thumb? You just mentioned like you, you don't want to have too many under one umbrella. Do you have yeah. a, a cutoff point or, how's it, or is it based on the value? Um, I don't really, I would just say at any given time I have like one to three projects per LLC and I just have like a Excel spreadsheet or a CRM that kind of tracks like, Oh, which projects are owned by which LLC. So I just kind of try to split it. I mean, I don't, I think I have like 11 or 12 LLCs in those sub LLCs. So I just kind of try to split it up as best as I can. Um, and then of course, if I buy like when I bought my apartment building, like I created a brand new LLC just for that apartment building, right? Um, because the, the lender wanted that and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, if you're doing like huge projects, I would just create a new LLC. Um, I use a website called Incorp, I-N-C-O-R-P.com. Um, they're super cheap. They're the cheapest I've found, cheaper than LegalZoom and all that kind of stuff too to make those LLCs um, so you can – and they, they're actually pretty fast as well. So even if you're closing in a couple of days, you can make a brand new LLC and close it in that. Nice. Yeah. I, I know when I was, uh, remember I left when I was leaving corporate America, it was like, I had to hit the ground running fast as possible. Yeah. 
So I, I went the legal zoom route. I mean, I knew I could have did it all myself. I just needed something quick. I just remember making a video on it on YouTube and everybody's like, I thought they were a scam and blah, 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 blah. So I said, why have any issues with them? It, it does help to get an email every quarter when it's time to do sales tax and all these different things. Um, yeah. You know, but as you do it more and more, like you said, there are, I'll make sure I put a link for that service you referred. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, LegalZoom's good. We used to use it. It's just then we found this one, and we're like, wow, why is it a third of the price? So, gotcha. yeah. And I'm, I'm big on productivity hacks and, and software. So you said you use a CRM, you use Excel. Yep. Uh, what type of CRM are you using? Sure. We just upgraded this year to a Zoho CRM. It's like 30 bucks per user per month. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that expensive. Um, but, I mean, it's amazing. So... Last year, I think I did 60 projects, and I did all that with like a free CRM called VTigger. It's like a free open source CRM. It's terrible. And then I upgraded to this one this year, and like 70 or 80% of the emails I used to send manually are all automated. Tasks are automatically created. I can see like where each project is and its life cycle. Um, so it's it also like incorporate when people fill out forms on my website, it automatically creates leads on the CRM. So it's unbelievable how much of a difference and like paying for a good CRM, especially when you're trying to scale up your company. I wish I did this last year. Um, but you know, some people are like, Oh, I'll just do it for free. And I don't want to pay a hundred bucks a month, but trust me, these, this CRM is incredible. I'm not sure. Do you have a CRM that you use as well? I've been testing on um, Bitrix 24. Okay. Uh, I've been testing that for some of the digital marketing. Got it. Um, so I've, I've been trying that out. Okay. Um, as far as this, my business, we I just use for my management side of it, and the financing is just I use QuickBooks because we are, yep. you know, on the contractor side. So creating quotes, invoicing, um, estimating yeah, we use that taxes one too. and stuff like that. I just actually had today to make sure I hit my March 15 deadline. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, starting out, it's just trying to be a one man band wearing all these hats, but uh, eventually, you know, we'll scale up and I do yep. have my accountant and stuff logging into our system to, you know, to look at my books and stuff like that. So eventually yeah, yeah, I yeah. want to scale and focus on business development, not have to be so far entrenched in the day to day. Yeah, but exactly. It's kind of, it's a necessity, you know, to make sure you can understand your business, you know, know where the problems are, the challenges where you can improve. So I can't be totally disconnected, but definitely yeah. I free myself up to, to be able to scale. So where, where are you headed now? We were talking earlier, you were asking me about Buffalo and other parts. So you're not just doing properties in in LA. I heard you say, heard you say Memphis. And so yeah. kind of where do you expect to see yourself in the next couple of years? Like, what are you trying to be like nationwide or how do you, how do you go about yeah. scaling? Yeah, so right now I do the turnkey stuff in Memphis, Cleveland, St. Louis, um, and Birmingham, Alabama. Mostly Memphis and Cleveland. The other two markets, Birmingham and uh, St. Louis, I'm just kind of starting out. Um, so it's it's just really hard to find markets that work for my business model, which is like, you know, turnkey rental properties that are cash flowing at you know, 15% return. It's hard to find, and there's not many markets where it can work that you know where the those cities are stable and have you know are have good economics so it's really hard to find cities so that's why like doing going nationwide i just don't see it happening just because there's not enough markets in the us where my business model could work 
Um, so my goal is to eventually move into like apartment buildings and apartment building syndication. So, you know, keep the turnkey business going and keep that growing, but then also move into doing more apartment buildings and, you know, helping people invest with us on those apartment buildings. So last year I bought my first apartment building, which was 20 units, but I'd like to, you know, get into bigger and better things. So doing 50 units or a hundred units. So that's what I see. I see myself growing the turnkey business from a hundred homes a year to like 300 homes a year. And then apartment buildings going from 20 units to maybe a hundred or 200 unit buildings. See now that's, that's stuff I need to hear too. Cause you know, I've done the single family, but that's kind of my next step is getting yeah. to, you know, multi-units. And so before I forget that thought, um, you mentioned Memphis and I'm going to come back to the apartment building. Have you heard of Memphis Invest? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a partner that we did some real estate together and um, he's out in Texas. Okay. And um, so I never heard of Memphis Invest and he was telling me kind of, so when I heard what you were talking about, I was like, oh, it's kind of similar. Uh, yeah. 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 Similar concept. Very similar. And, they do a lot of projects. I forgot how many they say they do a year, 500 or, or whatever, but they have yeah. a lot of projects queued up. So I was like, that's eh, pretty similar. I think they're doing Memphis and I think they have another one called Dallas Invest, I think. Yeah. Yeah, they do Memphis and Dallas and then I think they're getting into St. Louis as well. Mm -hmm. And that's, what's, what's cool about it and, um, you know, they have a lot of content. You know, like, I, I'm quite sure you have your email list and stuff set up and yeah. So you're sending out content to your you know, potential clients and stuff. So yeah. I've been looking at some of their stuff just to, you know, just understand the content and get some value from that. So, yeah, they're great. They do. So they're, yeah, very, they have the exact same business model as me. Um, they're just much larger. Um, they also have their property management companies in house. Um, but yeah, they're, they're good. They're just a little bit higher of a price point. My homes are like less than a hundred thousand bucks. They do like, you know, 125-ish range. Um, so they're just a little bit more, not expensive, but just uh, it's more dollars that you have to put down. The neighborhoods are a little bit different. They focus a lot on B-class neighborhoods. I'm more of like C, B minus. Um, yeah. That's awesome. I mean, cause so when I, when I talk to other, you know, people trying to get in business and even when I was thinking about business ideas, you always, a lot of times your reservations and fears, it's like, well, other people have already done it. What, you know, how can I find my spot in that market? And I always tell people, go for it anyway because everybody can eat. That's, that's what I like to say. Yep. So yep. don't ever fear competition. Or if, if you know the people are already doing it, then you know there's, it's, it's a proven model. And so did you hear about them before you got going? Or was there anything you learned from them? Yeah, I knew them. Yeah, they've been, I mean, they've been in the business for years, right? So um, I think their father, it was two brothers and then their father started the company and then the two brothers kind of helped grow. I mean, this is just, uh, I don't know the facts, but this is kind of the story I know. There's always going to be, you're always going to have competition. If you don't have competition, then, you know, something's wrong. Um, so there's always going to be competition, but I wouldn't really, again, like I told you, like my product is I have the same business model as these people. I'm in the same market, um, and I'm still able to do 10 houses a month. They do 20 houses a month or 17 or something like that last time I heard. Um, so, you know, like we're both in the same market, same business model, but our product is just a tiny bit different. And just with that small little change of having a tiny different product, different price point, um, different client we're trying to attract, then, you know, it's still both of us can function in the same exact market. So yeah, know what you should know all your competitors and all the different product offerings. 
because it's going to help you craft your product offering in a little bit in a in a pocket of that market that you know isn't being touched. So I think it helps to do as much research as you can on all of your competitors to know where you can fit it into the product market and um, and yeah, I think that's that's kind of how I did it too because I knew all I went and researched all the other turnkey providers in Memphis, saw what they were doing, where they were doing it. And how much how much volume they were doing, their price points, et cetera. And then said, Oh, well, nobody's doing nobody's doing it over here and nobody's doing it in this price point. Um, and then I kind of took that model into a bunch of different markets and just, you know, do your do your homework and due diligence to make sure that um, you're providing something that nobody else is providing. Well said. Uh, so I want to fast forward back to that the question about we were talking about apartment buildings. So how'd you yeah. 20 units like how did you even approach that deal like how'd you even find it matter of fact I mean, you know yeah the market every day i know i go on LoopNet and certain sites like that but how did you even go about even finding that deal and putting that deal together yeah so it was a long time coming so all of last year pretty much from like march all the way up to like august or something like that i was like networking with a bunch of i knew i wanted to buy an apartment building I'd only done like single families or residential sites. So single families up to four units at that point. And I was like, no, but I want to do something bigger. Um, I want to buy an apartment building and just, you know, live off the cash flow kind of thing. So I started networking with a bunch of brokers in my markets. So Memphis and Cleveland mostly, I would just like pull a whole list of of brokers, commercial brokers, and I would just call them, email them, tell them what I was looking for, and I would just keep following up every other week. So I did that for like six months, let's say. And I just kept following up with them, kept following up with them. Hey, this is Antoine. I'm looking for an apartment building. This is my criteria, you know, every other week with these people. Um, and then it just so happened that one of the days that I was following up with one of the brokers gave him my criteria. He was like, oh, yeah, I actually got a, one of the, a deal that fits that perfectly this morning. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Send it over. He was like, okay, cool. I'll send it. I think he sent it to me first or second or something like that. And it was just like three or four photos of an exterior no interior photos. And then it was like the financials typed out in an email. Hmm. And I was like, can I get the financials? Can I move, can I move forward with this one? I really like the area. I like the numbers. He's like, no, no financials until you place an LOI. And I like, you know, I went and did my homework on the operating expenses and what the rent, you know, I got like, a, I think I got a rent roll and like just some basic information, not enough to like, to really put an offer together. But, um, I was like, okay, well I, I just like, they're like, we're looking for 1.1 million. And I was like, okay, I'll offer 900. And we submitted an LOI. They came back at a million and we're like, okay, we agreed to it. And just in the contract, we made it so that due diligence didn't begin until we had all the financial information. So it took them like 30 days to get us all that information. And during that time, I was like, you know, going ham, doing as much research as they could about the the market, the neighborhood, the property, walking the property, taking photos, figuring out what needed to be done. So it get, it bought me a whole month doing it that way because the buyers weren't really prepared. They were just like, oh, I wonder what we can get on the market, but they didn't want to, you know, dig up all the financials, right? So that's kind of how I found the deal and how I, uh, how I, and then once I got all the financial information, then due diligence began, and then I kind of had 30 days to, um, 30 or 60 days to complete my due diligence, and then yeah, so that's kind of how I found the deal. It was just really through following up with those brokers, and then once a deal comes up, that's good. I mean, it, you can't be scared to make an LOI, 
um, or make an offer. It's called a letter of intent, LOI. Um, it's just pretty much the first stage of writing a purchase and sale agreement just to get you and the buyer on board about price and terms and different things like that. So you're saying you know, they wanted a million. So did you already have your financing ready or you just said, I'm going to lock the deal? Because <laughs> no. that's, that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. I know. It I shuts know. people down when they think of real estate. I got to have all this money for a down payment, whatever it may be. What, yeah. what propelled you to even you know, think past that? I know you had experience under your belt now. So yeah, how, how did you get past that dollar figure? Yeah, so I didn't have financing lined up. Uh, I knew that financing was going to be a struggle because I don't have W-2 income. And that purchase price size, like the government won't, the Freddie Mac program won't finance that because it's too low. So I knew it was going to be a struggle um, to get financing at that price point. We had some money saved up because like the markets for the single family home side were like moving kind of slowly at that point. So we had some money saved up. So I knew I could afford the down payment, whatever it may be, like 30% down or something. So I knew I was good there. I didn't know who was going to finance the deal. I kind of just in my numbers just, you know, put like a, a really expensive loan at like six or 7% and just said, okay, well, I hope we can find a lender for this amount of money. Um, and then as soon as I had like the property under contract, then I went and just, you know, called every single lender who I thought could help me finance the deal. Then we eventually found a lender who helped us finance it. Um, and they were like an asset based lender. So they didn't really care about our financial, um, history or tax returns. It was just all about the property. Um, so that's kind of how, but I did it all. I mean, you have to, you're going to eventually have to take the risk. I mean, you can't place an, if you wait to have everything lined up before placing that offer, you're never going to get anything. These deals move in like the good ones move in a couple of hours because people just put them under contract, tie it up, and then they figure out everything else. And I guess I'd kind of learned that through the residential side. Like when properties come up on the MLS, I just make an, make a blind offer get under contract, then do your homework. And you want to make an offer that, you know, makes sense that you think is going to make sense. So like budget for renovation, budget for high interest rate, all that kind of stuff. But getting stuff under contract and then working the deal and making the deal work once you have it under contract is kind of my, was my methodology with the single family home side. And then I guess I just, you know, when I did the apartment building, I thought, thought I can do the same thing. And yeah, it worked. What's the analysis paralysis, they always say? So that's, a, that's the biggest thing. You know, yeah. as an engineer background, you know, a lot of people's like, oh, you guys can't get out of your own way because you're trying to analyze. Uh, I think the best thing that helped me was going into management and this entrepreneurship world. It really helps me break outside of the box of just trying to have everything perfect. But yeah, just, just taking that action and taking that leap of faith. And then you have the background to, to pull it all together. So. Yeah. That's a remarkable yeah, and I mean, story. Thank you. Yeah, and I mean, you have to look at like, okay, what's the worst case scenario? If I don't get this, if I place this offer and get the deal under contract, then I can't move forward for whatever reason. Like, what do I lose? So if I can't get financing, I can get my, when you put it under contract, you have to put some earnest money. So I think we put like 5,000 bucks or something. So the worst case scenario going through that whole process is I lose my 5,000 bucks, but I'm going to learn a whole lot <laughs> for the next deal, right? So that's kind of how I looked at it. Like, you know, I may I may waste a lot of time or spend a lot of time going through this, but it's going to help me on the next deal. Even if this doesn't go through, I'll lose my five grand, but I'll just count it as an educational expense. Um, so that's kind of how I was looking at it at that point. And, um, you know, and then I'll know better for the next time. And that's the only way to grow. Right. So 
there's only so many books you can read and courses you can go through that are going to make you feel comfortable. Eventually, you're just going to have to do it, and every deal is different. So you eventually are going to have to take the jump and take the risk and always look at, okay, what's the worst-case scenario? I lose my five grand deposit, and I have to walk away, and I make some people upset, but um, I'll learn better for the next one, and you know it's going to help you grow. And next time you get another building, you're going to know more. You're going to be able to take more down more buildings because now you have that that experience. So basically, you're saying you you put in contingencies in your contract, so you always have a way out. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and give yourself enough time too in the contract. Like, if you're buying your first apartment building, don't say you're going to have five day due diligence, five days to close after. You know, give yourself time. So I think I asked for like 45 days of due diligence, 45 days to close after, and they countered back with 30 and 30. So you know, do whatever makes you feel comfortable within reason. Write, write up the offer that's going to make most sense for you. And then if they counter, then just work on it with, you know, with you and that seller. But yeah, make yourself feel comfortable. Give yourself enough time to do all your homework, um, especially on those those first big deals or even smaller deals. I mean, if you're buying single family homes, you know, ask for two weeks of due diligence and two weeks to close after that. So you have a full a full month to do your homework on that property. And worst case scenario, you lose your deposit. Understood. Yeah, I got a funny story too. When we moved to uh, New York, in Virginia, when we bought properties, we were used to a 30-day close. Yeah. Coming to New York, there's a two-attorney system, so it's a lot longer closing process. And I remember we relocated here. Basically, the company moved all our furniture and everything, and we were staying into like a stay stay. So we're like, okay, yeah, we're gonna be in our house in you know three or four weeks, and it ended up turning into six or seven weeks. Oh, we wait for the whole closing process and so it, it was definitely like you said add more time give yourself enough time and if you're planning things out because if you're going to look at different states everybody does things slightly different so yeah exactly um, man i i really enjoyed this episode it's a lot of great content here just to value your time here because we're approaching almost what, 45 minutes now yeah we've just been talking and going is there anything you know, you want to share with my audience um, more about you, more about your company, any words of inspiration. I really appreciate your time. And thanks for reaching yeah. out to me on social media, uh, <laughs> our social media. I like yeah. what you're doing with your marketing and stuff. So thank uh, you. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. So, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I would just say, like, you know, for a lot of there's a, a lot of young people out there who, you know, use say their age is, you know, going to stop them from success. Or you said looking at the competition is going to stop them from, you know, having a successful business. Just I was like 20 years old raising a couple million dollars on to fund all these projects out of state. And like it can be done. It doesn't matter how old you are or or what you look like or anything like that. It's just about your knowledge and um, you doing good to other people. So just use that as your focus. Don't count yourself out of the game when you haven't even started yet. Just go out there, take action, do your homework and do your due diligence, but do it up to a point. So don't do it up to a point where you're never going to do a deal. Um, don't be so conservative that you're never going to do anything. You're going to learn the most from doing deals instead of running numbers and reading books and listening to podcasts. So learn as much as you can, look at your resources, and then take action. And that's where you're really going to learn and grow. Awesome. Well said. Um, last thing, where can people find you? Yeah, sounds good. Um, I, so you can go to my website, martelturnkey.com. That's where, that's my main business. Um, you can reach out to me on Instagram. I post a lot of good content. It's not like there's no sales in it. It's just more like educational stuff. So like I would recommend it. 
um, if you're looking at getting into real estate or real estate investing. My Instagram is Martel Antoine, M-A-R-T-E-L-A-N-T-O-I-N-E. I also have a podcast as well. It's a millennial's guide to real estate investing. So you can check that out. Feel free to DM me, ask me any questions. We'd love to help uh, any of you uh, listeners out there.